Well, take your Bible and turn with me this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, We are going to look at the rest of this chapter. And then when we get into chapters 12, 13, and 14, things are going to slow down considerably as we look at spiritual gifts. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on that. Uh, But uh, tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. 17 to 34. So after you've found that in your Bible, stand with me. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for uh, the fellowship that we have in Christ. We thank you for the church and the body of Christ that we share with one another. Lord, we uh, want to uh, follow your instructions, the instructions of your word. We don't want to abuse uh, these ordinances. We don't want to uh, in any way misunderstand or misapply uh, your truth, your intention uh, for your church and the ordinances that are given to the church. So, Lord, we pray as we go through this passage tonight that we would understand 
uh, your message of warning here to the church and that we would be wise, that we would heed that message. And, Lord, we thank you that uh, uh, you've given us your word so that we can uh, know your will on these subjects. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his instruction to this church, and, Lord, that we can learn from that. So, Lord, again tonight as we worship, may our hearts be focused on you and uh, help us as we offer up that sacrifice of praise to you, the fruit of our lips with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most dramatic and meaningful of all the titles given to the Lord Jesus in Scripture is that of the Lamb of God. Our Lord is given, as you know, a number of titles, but there is none with more meaning for us than this one. Isaiah, looking ahead to hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah, said that Christ would be the Lamb that would be sacrificed to make atonement for our sins. That He would not open His mouth in His own defense, but would give His life for us. John the Baptist, when he was baptizing in the Jordan River, saw Jesus approaching and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Bible says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In 1 Peter 1, 19, the Bible says that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ who was slain as a lamb on our behalf. And then when you get to the book of Revelation, Christ is seen really all throughout that book as the Lamb of God seated on the throne of heaven and earth. The only one who was found worthy to open the sealed title deed to the earth. Folks, I am convinced that one of the most important things we ever do as a body of believers in keeping with what he has instructed us to do is to Worship and remember Christ, our Passover lamb, when we observe the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn with me again in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11. This is a fairly familiar passage of Scripture, at least the the section that deals with the Lord's Supper, because we use it very often when we observe that ordinance. And we read that lengthy passage earlier, but I want us to walk through it and to focus our hearts primarily on the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. Now, as we have seen in this first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, this letter was written as a corrective to deal with the many problems that existed in the Corinthian church. For whatever reasons, it seems that this particular church, of all the churches of that day and time, had serious problems in all areas of church life. We know that there was a lot of division and strife in this church. We know there was a situation involving uh, gross immorality. 
We know there was a lot of carnality or spiritual immaturity in this congregation. We know that they were abusing spiritual gifts. They were chasing after the showy gifts, as we'll see. We know they were taking each other to court and thus profaning the name of Christ. And we know that they were fighting over the issue of eating meat that had been offered to idols. And so on and on it goes. But in chapter 11, we see another area of church life that Paul has to address. We see that they are also abusing the love feast and the Lord's table. And interestingly enough, it is right in the middle of this corrective that we're given the clearest instruction anywhere in Scripture for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Tonight, I want us to broaden it out and see this entire passage. You know, we often just read the part about the Lord's Supper itself. But this evening, I want us to get the bigger picture here and see uh, all that Paul has to say in addressing this issue. We read it earlier, but this is critical truth for the church. Both by instruction and by example, our Lord Jesus gave us two ordinances that we are to observe in the church until he comes. Two ordinances. First, there is the ordinance of baptism, and then there is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And this is going to be, you've heard me say this many times, there are only two biblical ordinances. Any church tradition that goes beyond these two are man-made, extra-biblical traditions. Only two ordinances. And it is significant that both of these two ordinances show, in picture form, the very heart of the gospel. They show the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They show our co-identity with Him by faith. For example, Paul points to water baptism as a picture of our spiritual baptism into Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 6. In fact, let's just go to Romans 6 for just a moment and look at this passage. Romans chapter 6. Look with me, beginning in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, and that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed 
from sin. Now, we could obviously, obviously spend a whole lot of time on that passage, but this tells us that water baptism is a picture of the gospel. And our identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are identifying with Christ in the ordinance of water baptism. Our spiritual baptism at salvation results in our being cleansed from sin and being free to walk in newness of life. And by the way, this passage also makes a couple of things very clear. First of all, we see from this text there is a proper mode of baptism. And I'm always amazed at how many Christians, you know, say something like, well, you know, Pastor, I can go either way. You know, sprinkling is okay for some, immersion's okay for others. It just kind of depends on your preference, whatever feels right for you. Folks, that's not true. There is one biblical mode for baptism. There is only one way to show the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is by full immersion. You don't go out to the cemetery and sprinkle a little dirt on the casket and say that it has been buried. No, you put that thing in the ground, right? And in the same way, there is only one way to show a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that is to submerge the person in water. That's exactly what the Greek word for baptize means. Submerge, plunge, or immerse. The translators of the English Bible did not translate it. Because if they had, there would be no debate over it. Instead, they transliterated it, and they came up with a brand new word, the word baptism, and that word is generic enough to be taken any way you want to take it. But the literal meaning of the Greek word baptizo always means to submerge or to plunge or to immerse. And folks, listen, I, I feel strongly enough about this that I will say that if you have never been baptized the Bible way, then you have never publicly identified yourself with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's not a Baptist thing. That's a Bible thing. Full immersion is the only way to picture what the Bible says water baptism is to symbolize. It is to be a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if you have never been baptized by immersion, then you need to come and follow the New Testament pattern for this divinely commanded ordinance. But Romans 6 also tells us something else very important about the ordinance of baptism. And I've already hinted at this. But not only is there a proper mode of baptism, there is also a proper order for baptism. You must experience the reality of salvation before you can show the world a picture of it. Baptism is an individual ordinance, and it is for those 
who have first experienced spiritual baptism into Christ Jesus. You can't show a picture of something until you have experienced it first. The real thing, of course, is when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then you show the picture of that reality through water baptism. And listen, if you got baptized before you were truly saved, all you really did was get wet. You went down a dry center and you came up a wet one. That's not the proper order. Please understand, there's nothing magical about the water. It's just tap water, right? It does absolutely nothing for you apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's one of the main reasons why infant baptism is not practiced here. It's why there is nothing in Scripture that supports the practice of infant baptism. Folks, there is nothing in the ritual of water baptism that saves you. Water baptism is a symbol or a picture of true spiritual regeneration that takes place in your heart when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And you can't do that until you're old enough to understand the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. Because no one can do that for you. You have to do it. But you can't show the picture until you've experienced the reality of salvation. And listen, there may be some here this evening, and you have your baptism out of order. You have not been baptized in water after the time that you became born again through faith in Christ. Maybe you were baptized as a child before you were even old enough to understand the gospel. But if that is the case, you need to come and you need to get your baptism in proper New Testament order. Now, you might respond by saying, do you mean to tell me I need to get baptized all over again? No, I don't believe it's getting baptized over again. I believe it's getting baptized the first time. It is only when we do it God's way that he considers it true baptism. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that your mode of baptism or your order of baptism determines whether you're saved or not. Water baptism doesn't save you, and having your baptism out of order won't send you to hell. But I just believe we ought to want to honor God by doing things the way he says we ought to do it in his word. And I believe we should have a desire to show our public identification with Jesus through uh, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in the way he says that we're to show it. Okay, I've spent enough time on the ordinance of water baptism. We need to go back quickly now to the second ordinance of the church, and that is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Baptism is an individual ordinance. This one is corporate. This ordinance was instituted by Christ with his disciples the night before his death. 
And it is no coincidence that it occurred on the Jewish Passover. Because Jesus communicated to his disciples and then ultimately to the world that he was the fulfillment of all that the Passover means. He was the ultimate Passover lamb. Now, the New Testament book of Hebrews that we just recently worked our way through makes it absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood was shed once for all to atone for our sins. And we no longer have to sacrifice animals to try to atone for our sins as they did in the Old Testament because Jesus Christ was the perfect Lamb of God who died on the cross to expiate all our sins once and for all. And we spent a lot of time on that when we were going through Hebrews. But in light of that, let me just run through this passage here in 1 Corinthians 11 and give you some key truths about the Lord's Supper. Some truths about the Lord's Supper. First of all, let me address the excesses of the Lord's Supper. The reason Paul wrote this chapter was because the Corinthian believers were abusing it. In fact, he said in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. The first problem with their observance of the Lord's Supper, was that they were observing it while there were divisions in the body, divisions in the church. The word for divisions there is the word schismata. We get our English word schism from it. It literally means to rip or tear apart. It is the idea of ripping the fellowship of the church apart. What's Paul saying here? He's saying you're not ready to observe the Lord's Supper if there are those in the church who are causing division and strife. If there are those who are ripping up the fellowship of believers by sowing ugly seeds of discord and division, then you need to deal with that sin before you come together to take the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul's saying. Paul was warning the church at Corinth that this was something God hated. It was a great sin in the eyes of the Lord, and he would not take it lightly. Anyone who may be causing any kind of division or strife in the church needs to repent of that sin before they take the Lord's Supper. This is a desecration of the Lord's table. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What was happening here? There was favoritism going on. The wealthy church members were getting there first and they were having a scrumptious meal, and then they would put everything away before the poor people showed up. And rather than sharing their food as the love feast was originally intended, they hoarded their food and they would not share with the poor. 
And while there were some, as a result, who were walking away hungry, there were others who were getting drunk. In other words, they were being totally self-absorbed and caring nothing for the needs of others. Folks, the whole point here is that we're not really ready to observe the Lord's Supper if we are self-indulgent, if we are only thinking of ourselves and are not genuinely concerned for the needs of others. There's not that genuine love in the body that we are demonstrating toward one another. We're not ready to observe the Lord's Supper. Paul says, I can't praise you for this. This is not good. Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I will not praise you. This is not praiseworthy. This is sinful. This is a desecration in the church. So we always need to guard against these kinds of of excesses and abuses as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper. But notice, secondly, the elements of the Lord's Supper. And this is going to be the more familiar part of it. But when we share the Lord's Supper, we share two elements, the bread and the cup. Look with me at verse 23 again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is the symbol of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. The broken bread symbolizes the body of Christ, who was the bread of life. Jesus said of himself that any who would eat of him in a spiritual sense would never hunger again. Have you discovered the truth of that? Have you tasted of the Lord and been fully satisfied in Him, I trust that all of us here tonight can say yes. The bread pictures the body of Christ as He hung on the cross for us in our place. The Bible says He bore our sins in His body on the cross. And so when you eat the bread, remember, it is only because He was willing to die on the cross and to physically suffer in our place that we can experience salvation and receive eternal life. The juice, the fruit of the vine, symbolizes the shed blood of Christ on the cross. His blood was shed, of course, for the remission of sins, the covering for our sins, the atoning of our sins. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Blood of Christ was the atonement. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb was 
placed over the doorpost to let the death angel know that death had already come to that house and would pass over that house on the basis of the blood covering. So anyone who has the blood of Christ applied to his or her heart by faith has a covering for sin that will never be subject to the wrath of God. This is the symbolism that we see in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Praise God for His provision of salvation. And that is what we are being reminded of every time we observe the Lord's Supper. And we take the bread and we take the cup. And Jesus said this, was a, this is a sign of the new covenant that He had inaugurated. But thirdly, we need to talk about some errors concerning the Lord's Supper. Some errors. Several hundred years after Christ, the Roman church began to distort the observance of the Lord's Supper by attributing some mystical beliefs concerning the elements of the bread and the wine. As a result, several errors became normative in the church for hundreds of years. And those errors are still very much with us still today. I believe we ought to understand these errors and make sure we do not fall into the subtle temptation of mystifying the Lord's table beyond what God intended. And before I launch into these, I'm not bashing Catholics here, what I'm doing is comparing the teaching of the Catholic Church to Scripture. You and I have a right and even a responsibility, I believe, to test any teaching in the church and see if it lines up with the clear teaching of Scripture. So if you get offended by this, let me just ask for your forgiveness up front. But these are issues that are too important to just act like they don't exist. As with any doctrine, we need to see if this is from Scripture or if this is a man-made tradition. If the Reformers were willing to die for these truths, then the least that I should be willing to do is to risk some sort of criticism for making these things clear. Now, these errors have big theological names, but I think it is important to understand them. The first one is called transubstantiation. It was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church in the Lateran Council of 1250 A.D. What this dogma states is that as the priest performs certain magical rites over the bread and the wine they literally become the body and blood of Christ. The word transubstantiation means transformed in substance. So they say it doesn't really matter if it still looks like dry bread and fruit juice. Metaphysically, it has become the actual body and blood of Christ. And by the way, the Catholic Mass is a re-sacrificing of Christ, something the book of Hebrews specifically denounces as being unnecessary 
because He died once for all. In fact, the book of Hebrews goes so far as to say that it is impossible for Christ to go back to the cross and to atone for sins again. He did it once for all, and that is absolutely and totally sufficient. Now, you might say, well, come on, Pastor. You know, what difference does it make if someone thinks it's the actual body and blood of Christ or that it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ? What difference does it make? Here's the danger. If you believe that it is the actual body and blood of Christ, then it is no longer received by faith in one's heart. Instead, it is received by the physical act of eating and drinking. Do you see the difference? And there are countless Catholics today who believe they are saved because they go and take the wafer and consume it. Folks, listen, there are millions of people in this world today who sincerely believe that because they go to Mass and because they physically eat the wafer and drink the juice, they are saved. But, folks, it is impossible to be saved that way. That is not the biblical doctrine of salvation. This is not a biblical practice. It goes directly against what the New Testament teaches about salvation. The bread and the juice are symbols of Christ's body and blood, but not literally His body and blood. And no amount of hocus-pocus can change that. Well, there's another dangerous error that also became connected with the Lord's Supper, and that is known as sacramentalism. The word sacrament means that there is saving efficacy within the practice of these ordinances. In fact, the Roman church began to teach that the way of salvation is through the keeping of the sacraments. My friend, listen, no Bible teaching church will ever refer to baptism or the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. It's not a sacrament. These ordinances do not convey grace in any way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through any religious ritual. But we could spend a whole lot of time on these things, but we're running out of time. So let's move to the expectations of the Lord's Supper. Paul said that whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What are those last three words? Until He comes. The Lord's Supper not only looks back to the atoning death of Christ on the cross, it also looks forward to His soon return. And someday, I believe very soon, the Lord Jesus is going to return for His bride. And when He does, one of the first things that we will be part of is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I have a suspicion I know what the menu will be. Oh, what a day that will be. 
And we are to observe this ordinance in the church until that day. But there's one last thing that we need to see in this passage in closing. And that is the examination of the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There is an examination that needs to take place before we observe the Lord's Supper together. These are some of the most sobering words of all the New Testament. Failing to examine ourselves, Paul said, can result in bringing judgment or chastisement upon ourselves. If we fail to allow the Lord to cleanse our hearts before we observe the Lord's Supper Paul says this has resulted in some becoming weak and some becoming sick and some even dying. The judgment is so severe here that in some cases, Paul says some have died as a result. And folks, I didn't write that. The Holy Spirit wrote that through Paul. We're not to take this lightly at all. This is serious business in the eyes of God. And I think that there are at least two ways that we need to examine ourselves individually before we observe this corporate uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper. First of all, we need to examine ourselves and make sure we are in the faith. Make sure we're born again. These ordinances are, are for believers. So we need to first... Examine ourselves and make sure we're in the faith. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul will say, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Make sure. Look at your life. Ask yourself, has there been any change in my life? Is there any evidence of spiritual regeneration that I can point to that gives evidence? Do I love the believers? Do I want to be in fellowship with other Christians? Do I love God's Word? Do I want to be in His Word and know His Word? Those are evidences of salvation. Test yourself. See if you're in the faith. My friend, listen, Jesus Christ did not come into the world just to give another religion. He came to redeem us from sin by the shedding of His precious blood. He came to reconcile us to God by His sacrifice on the cross. And you may be a member of a church or maybe even a number of churches. You may have been baptized. You may read the Bible and pray. You may give your offering to the church. But listen, if there has never been a time when you have humbled yourself before God and acknowledged your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then you need to make sure you do that before you observe this ordinance. That's the first way we need to examine ourselves. 
But if you have settled that, and I'm assuming that most of us here, and hopefully all, all of us here tonight have settled that, there is another aspect of self-examination that I need to talk about this evening. And I often talk about this when we observe the Lord's Supper. But that is the examination that we all need to make in our own hearts just before we observe this ordinance together. The observance of the Lord's Supper is to be a time of our looking at our own lives and seeing if there's anything displeasing to the Lord and and seeing if there's any sin in our lives that we need to confess and forsake and, and turning from that and repenting and allowing the Lord to cleanse our hearts. And we need to do that before we observe this ordinance. God wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to turn His searchlight on our hearts and to eliminate any sin that needs to be dealt with. So in this way, as we mentioned a week ago, God intends for the Lord's Supper to serve as kind of a purifying device in the church. This is the time that we're to come and we're to confess our sin and we're to acknowledge our sin and uh, allow the Lord to cleanse our hearts. So the next time we observe the Lord's Supper, let's remember these things so that we won't abuse it in any way, but that we'll observe it according to His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You that You've given us these instructions. They're clear. We don't have to wonder about them. And Lord, we pray that You would protect us from uh, the errors, the abuses that we see elsewhere And, Lord, that we might understand your word, that we would uh, line up with it in everything we do, especially uh, as it regards to these two biblical ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We want to be pleasing in your sight. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.